I'll be reading 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. If you're using a Bible from the chair rack, it should be on page uh, 1023. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard from was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, that not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew read from 1 John. I would like you now to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Our sermon text for today is John, Gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. So there are some things in life that you can't fully appreciate unless you stop and ponder and really gaze long upon. Um, how many of you have ever taken a walk in the woods so hurriedly that you walk past all kinds of flowers and insects and squirrels and chipmunks and birds and deer and beams of light that break through the canopy of the trees and rock formations? And we could go on and on and on about all of the beautiful things to see in God's creation that we miss because we just hurriedly walk on by. We, we, in fact, need to stop and look to notice the beauty that is all around us. Uh, in my younger years, um, I wanted to be like James Lindmark. Uh, I just didn't know James then. I wanted to be a deer hunter, and so I spent some time in the woods, and uh, I never, ever did get a deer, but... Um, what I enjoyed most about deer hunting was being in the woods, sitting still, and no one else around, and just watching what was there. And when you sit still and you just notice uh, the animal life and what, all of what God's created, created was really the most beautiful thing for me. I, I remember one, one time in particular where it was a little bit of a warmer day, but as, as we got closer to the evening, all of a sudden this, this snowstorm just hit. But it was like 
big, huge flakes that just floated to the ground. And I was watching this little meadow surrounded by pine trees. And, and I just remember it was an iconic view for me just to watch what God has created. Um, had I not stopped and just sat there and pondered and, and gazed long upon those things, I would have, I would have missed all of that beauty. A Christmas is like that for us. Uh, we can get so busy with all of the uh, traditional things that we do, but Christmas is really so beautiful and so glorious that we need to really stop and take a long look at what Christmas is all about in order to really, really savor it. The story of Christmas reveals a God who is worthy of our long, careful, fixed gaze, for without that, we'll, we'll miss the majestic glory and beauty that has been revealed. John, John's gospel helps us to do that. It helps us to see and understand the beauty of Christmas. In, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we, it begins by saying this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just that little phrase is really quite staggering. What an amazing, all-inspiring thing God has done. So who, who is this Word who became flesh? Verse 1 through 4 tell us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. So the eternal word and creator of all things, keeping his full and undiminished deity, became a human being. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word. It, it, refer, it refers to a state of being prior to, be, to the beginning of time. In verse 14 the word became speaks of something coming into existence. So the word is not becoming because the word always was, but the fact that he became a man is what's new. So let's keep that straight in our thinking and believing. Christmas does not celebrate the fact that the second person of the triune God came into being. Rather, Christmas celebrates the fact that the same person of the triune God became flesh. Jesus, born in a stable in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, was fully God and was always God and fully man. He became flesh. So do you, do you ever ponder those things? Do you ever marvel at what God has done? What, what a picture... What a picture of his awesome glory. The question is, how could this be? How did this happen? When, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, um, he thought he had a huge problem on his hands because he knew that he wasn't the father of that child. But an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So that was Joseph's experience. Then there was Mary. 
the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Mary then asked, as you know, a very important question, very practical question. She was not doubting the promise of the angel as Zechariah had done when he was told about his wife Elizabeth becoming pregnant in her old age and said, Mary simply asked, how, how will this be since I am a virgin? So Mary understood the angel's message that she would conceive now as a virgin and not after she was married. She, she was sexually pure. Mary had never had sexual relations with a man. And so her question was very appropriate. How, how can I have a child if I am a virgin? Well, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age is all conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God so as a virgin Mary's conception would be nothing short of a of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit um, th think about this that the, the universe that we live in came into existence because God spoke it into existence from absolutely nothing that's the power of his word let there be light and there was light so we really should not be surprised by this text and that that where the the angel spoke of what of, of how mary would conceive so we shouldn't be surprised by that but we should in fact marvel we should marvel at the awesome power of god uh, nothing is impossible with God. There's absolutely no language here that even hints of any type of intimate contact with Mary. Um, certainly Greek mythology is filled with gods having sexual relations with women, but folks, there's nothing here of that sort that's taken place. The Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow her, and the result of this pure display of the spirit's creative power mary will conceive and this is a key the holy one will be born called the son of god so this virgin birth of christ is so very important um, god's ways are filled with uh, infinite wisdom that only he has when when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, the Scripture tells us that Adam's sin, um, he passed, the, the, that original sin was passed down to each succeeding generation. Um, that's why you and I are born sinners. We sin because we are sinners from birth. We, we are born with a depraved nature and we don't have any ability in ourselves to even seek after God. However, Jesus was radically different. Jesus did not receive a sin nature that was passed down from Adam. Jesus had 
no earthly father that passed on that original sin. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the result, as the text says, is that the Holy One will be born. So, I don't have to convince you that you and I are not born holy, anything but holy. But Jesus was born holy because his conception and birth were unlike any other. Again, keep in mind, nothing is impossible with God. The eternal word, the creator of this universe, who was with God and was God, became flesh. The the word became flesh is so radical and unique and awe-inspiring This would have staggered the original readers, Jew and Greek, but especially Greeks, because they were influenced by the philosophy of dualism. They believed that only the spiritual or the immaterial part of man is pure, and that which is physical, material, is impure. Well, if if that is true, what, what are we really saying about Jesus? In the creation account, what, what did God say about the creation of man made in his likeness and image? Male and female, he created them. What did he say about them? He said they were very good. That's exactly right. So th- this becomes really practical. How, how many of you have ever said, or believed that we sin because we're human. Now, if that statement were true, then what would we really be saying about Jesus, who became human, who took on flesh? Being human is not the problem. We don't sin because we're human. Jesus was fully human, and he never sinned. We sin because we're sinners. The word became flesh, and he was pure and holy, and was in fact without sin. The holy, pure word became flesh, the text says, and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt speaks of pitching a tent. Um, It's where we get the word tabernacle. We could say that the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. So I think John clearly takes us back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Um, If you remember, what what did the tabernacle in the Old Testament represent? It was, in fact, the the dwelling place of God. The the very presence of God was, was in the tabernacle with his people. The Lord gave the Israelites instructions about building a tabernacle in Exodus 25, 8, where we read this, and let them... Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Listen to what the Lord says about the significance of the tabernacle in Exodus 29, verse 43 through 46. And I quote, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. 
So the point in John chapter 1, verse 14 is this. Jesus was God dwelling with his people. <laughs> Jesus, who is the second person of the triune God in the flesh, came to the earth to save sinners. God did what man could not do, and he did it through the word becoming flesh and dwelling with us. So this truth of the word became flesh and dwelt among us to save us from our sin is so important throughout Scripture. Um, our redemption would be impossible if the pure and holy word did not become flesh. Um, in your notes, I've listed um, a number of different passages, but I want to just read two for a point of emphasis this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, uh, he himself, speaking of Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for... Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That would be impossible if the word did not become flesh and dwell, dwell with us. Also, uh, in 1 John chapter 4, um, there's a text, and Andrew read a portion of this earlier, uh, there's a text here that helps us understand this word became flesh. and dwell. This is a non-negotiable for the Christian life. Listen to 1 John 4, verse 2 and 3. For by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Well, when you read that, you begin to see, you know, this whole doctrine of the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's really important. It's really important. So we need to beware of cults like Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, who, who, want, who, who want to believe, they want you to believe, they want to claim to be Christian, but in fact, they are a cult. And they are of the spirit of the Antichrist because they deny these truths that the Bible teaches about the true identity of Jesus being God in the flesh. So that's the negative side to avoid. On the positive side, I, I invite you to marvel at what God has done. Um, marvel at what uh, he is doing, uh, he, he's doing and he has done what, what no man alone could do. God is, in fact, transcendent. Um, he, he is far above us, and yet God is also imminent. That, that means he dwells with us in the person of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So 
He's transcendent, but He's imminent. He's above us, but He has chosen to come and to dwell with us. And I want to suggest that that's one of the reasons why ministry must be personal and incarnational. I mean, we must be with people. Um, Zoom meetings cannot uh, permanently replace personal visits that we take to Romania. Um, I'm thankful that uh, through this pandemic, uh, through COVID, um, though we were not able to travel, we've been able to make some contact with our brothers and sisters in Romania through Zoom. That's, that's, been, that's been a help. Um, we would never have those Zoom meetings, though, if there weren't many personal visits um, doing an incarnational ministry, dwelling with them, walking with them, living in their houses, preaching in their churches. Without that incarnational ministry, um, the Zoom meetings that we had would not have been, it would not even have taken place. Um, it's another reason why um, streaming live worship services cannot be the norm for church to function as God intends. They, they serve a good purpose. Uh, my dad is one all, that almost weekly tells me, I'm so thankful that these services are being streamed live. When he's not able to be here, uh, he's able to tune in and, and to be a part of the worship service in that way. So they serve a purpose, but they can't become the norm. They can't replace us gathering together as believers for worship, for fellowship, for prayer, for uh, edification. So marvel at what God has done. It, it's so important to recognize that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that's an amazing thing. But secondly, John says we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So John says, we have seen His glory. And I think that we probably refers first to the apostles. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus during His life, His death, and even of His resurrection. But today, by the Holy Spirit, we too are enabled to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through these witnesses, as the Holy Spirit uh, enabled them to write down the written Word of God where God's glory is revealed to us in the face of Christ. Verse 14 says, Glory as of the only Son from the Father. In other words, the glory of the Word become flesh is a unique, one-of-a-kind glory. It's the glory that belongs to God who is in a class all by Himself. Just like the Father, the Word's glory is God's glory because the Word is God. But what does John mean when he speaks of glory? Well, I think the first thing that we think of when we speak of seeing His glory, when, when it's spoken in the context here of this idea of tabernacling, um, we, we think of the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled 
the tabernacle. Um, in Exodus 34, verse 34 through 35, Moses' face was radi- radiant because he was with the Lord. But what, what is this glory of God? Well, one, one lexicon gives three different ways the word glory is used. One, it can refer to brightness, splendor, radiance. Um, in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around the angels when they announced the Savior's birth. So it's that idea of brightness, splendor, radiance. Secondly, glory can speak of magnificence and splendor. Um, And then number three, glory can speak of fame, renown, or honor. Like 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, do all for the glory of God. So I think think it would be right to say that glory, glory is not an attribute of God. Rather, it is the magnificent radiance of all that God is. And because of that, he deserves fame and honor. Um, John 1.14 teaches us that Jesus reveals God's glory, reveals um, the magnificent radiance of all that God is, and because of that, he deserves fame and honor. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So the the glory of Jesus was seen in at least three key ways in the New Testament. One, his glory is revealed through the miracles that he did, doing things that no man can do, doing things that only God can do, turning water into wine, the the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, the walking on the water in the midst of the storm, healing of the leper, restoring the blind, raising Lazarus from the dead, rebuking the wind and calming the wa- and the storming waters, healing the demoniac and many others as well. It's one of the ways in which God's glory was revealed in Jesus. Secondly, his glory was revealed when he was transfigured be- before Peter, James, and John. In Matthew 17, verse 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Because the glory of God uh, was revealed. Thirdly, I believe that God's glory is revealed most vividly, most powerfully in the suffering of Christ. The, the character, the, the beauty, the power, the wisdom, the, the love, the mercy, the grace revealed more stupendously in Jesus' willingness to suffer for sinners on the cross than in any other way. The the cross of Christ is the center of God's breathtaking glory. The revealing of who He is. The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then one more thing. The end of verse 14 adds this of Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. So the words glory is superabundant in grace and truth. Grace and truth are important themes in John. 25 mentioned 25 times in the gospel, 20 times in his letters. The, the incarnation is the epitome of grace, God's unmerited favor, God's abundant blessing. His coming shows the initiative he took to meet our greatest need. Uh, not, not only his ability to do so, but his desire, his willingness to do so, to come and suffer in our place to redeem us. The, the incarnation is truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the right way and the only way to the Father. He is the right way to live before the Father. He is the only way to know the Father. And in His coming and in His dying, uh, His giving of Himself, He lavishly supplied all that we need. Though we deserve none of it, though we deserve only separation and judgment for our sin, He provided a way for us to know and enjoy God in this life and in the life to come. The question is, the question is, we, as we just stop and ponder and gaze upon this reality, this truth that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, how this Word that dwelt among us revealed the glory of God, full of grace and truth. As we ponder that, why do we need to ponder that? John's Gospel is very clear and very explicit that he wrote all of these things so that as in John chapter 20, uh, verse 31, we read, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We, we have to stop and ponder we have to think long and hard on the beauty, the glory that is revealed through the incarnation of Christ so that we would come to the place where we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the anointed one of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life. If, if you really want to live if you want to have life the way that God intends for you to have life, you must put your faith in Jesus. You must believe what the Word reveals about God and what He has done through the Word become flesh, the, the Word that went to the cross and suffered in our place. John's Gospel was written to convince you that you must believe. Not your parents alone for you. You. You must believe. You must put your 
faith in Jesus if you want to experience life. So my question this morning is, do, do you believe? Are you believing? Are you living by faith? And if you are, the second part of it, are, are you amazed? When we gaze upon what verse 14 reveals to us, are you utterly amazed that the Creator of this universe stepped into humanity and laid down His life willingly so that you can have a relationship with Him and enjoy Him. What an amazing thing that is. But you must believe. In verses 15 through 18, we learn a, a number of important truths. In Jesus, we have one superior to the witness. Verse 15, John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. So, Jesus praised John as a great man, but John points us back to the fact that Jesus is the eternal God. In verse 16, in Jesus we have received grace upon grace. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus, Jesus is not a stingy expression of grace from God. He is a lavish pouring out of one blessing after another, Jesus abundantly meets our needs better than anyone. Do you believe that? Verse 17, In Jesus we have one superior to Moses in the law. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the law was good because it showed us our need for a Savior, but Jesus is full of grace and truth. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. It's in Jesus that we know God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. <laughs> this, this prologue ends as it began pointing to the deity of Christ. The deity of Jesus. This, this is the point. The Word, Jesus, fully God and fully man, reveals God to us. God planned this and God did this to reveal His glory and to provide a way for sinners to know Him. So, do you believe in Jesus? This Christmas, do you marvel and worship because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? Have you seen His glory, which is like the Father's, full of grace and truth? It, it is, in fact, so beautiful and glorious that it is worthy of you to take time to meditate on these truths. And the result will be a growing love and enjoyment of Jesus, not just for Christmas, but, in fact, for life. Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing thing you have done. There is no man who could ever dream up something so glorious. Father, there is a great danger that this familiar Christmas story would just kind of go in one ear and out the other. 
and we not be changed. But Father, you have revealed your own glory through Jesus. Your word tells the story again and again of what you have done. And you have done this to call us to live by faith in your Son who came and who went to the cross and died and was buried and was raised again to life, conquering sin and death so that we can know you, so we can live in a relationship with you where we are blessed by your love for us every day and our love for you is growing Father, what you have done is an amazing thing. Help us. Help us by your Spirit to continue to believe and to continue to worship you, not just at Christmas, but every day of the year. You, you and you alone are worthy of this. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.